This is the Wharton FinTech Podcast, and my name is Matt Applegate. Today, I'm joined by Dan Burkhart, who is the CEO and co-founder of Recurly, which is a subscription management platform for uh, 2,000 merchants worldwide. Um, Dan and I first met a few months ago back at the Innovation Project Conference in Cambridge. Um, Dan is also a Wharton alum, um, went to Wharton for his undergrad degree, um, and we had a great, um, a great conversation a few months ago and wanted to continue that today for the benefit of our listeners. So, um, so thanks, Dan, for joining us. We're excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's just start off uh, by um, by learning a little bit more about your background, your career, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, I, as you mentioned, I went to Wharton as an undergrad. I later went on to receive an MBA from UCLA, uh, and immediately after that, made a beeline for San Francisco. This was 1998. The first dot-com boom was happening. I knew I wanted to get involved with the internet. And I worked for NBC Internet, and that was back in the days of e-commerce, if we all remember back then, which was a very different model than that which we see today, which is more of a blend. But it's where I cut my teeth on business development, corporate development, and really understanding how the web worked and how commerce models on the web were quickly evolving. And then later on, after working for a couple of different startups, I ended up spending almost five years at eBay. And at eBay, I was charged with customer acquisition. Today, you would call it growth marketing, but I managed a group called Portals and Partners, and that was uh, largely to spend money on properties like uh, AOL, MSN, Yahoo, etc. And for us, what we were looking at was a an upfront customer acquisition cost, typically in the form of a lead uh, per lead cost or a bounty, if you will. And then we would look at the downstream bidding activity, which was in the form of uh, buyer engagement and bidding and monetization events that occurred over a period of time at eBay. So this predated today's notion of SaaS and the subscription model as we know it today, but the fundamentals of the way we were looking at our upfront spend going negative on customer acquisition costs and then recouping that spend over a period of time formed the basis for how I became intrigued with the subscription model. Later, after I left eBay, the advent of SaaS had, had occurred and it became more commonplace. And I met my co-founder and we basically merged my business background with his deep domain expertise in payments and we founded Recurly about six and a half years ago. So, so Recurly is a subscription management platform, right? Let's start by talking more about the subscription economy more generally. So I've read a few things that suggest we're in in a paradigm shift here where we're moving from you know one time or pay per product transaction type of economy to more of a subscription based model. So can you just give us some context around whether you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. We we absolutely are in a a paradigm shift. As much as uh, you know, I, I think that that term gets thrown around lightly. I, I, what I can tell you is that when we founded Recurly back in 2009, we thought we were largely going to be focused on the SaaS vertical and focusing on software companies. 
And what has happened since then is that there's just been this absolute explosion of an adoption of the subscription model across a broad variety of different verticals. And it's really opened my eyes to, to understanding the drivers of that. And it's sort of, I think, interesting and important to go back in time and understand the confluence of events that have enabled this to occur. So if you go back to the first dot-com days and you think about the way commerce happened on the web, there were really fundamentally two different models on the web. It was either you were selling things and it was an e-commerce model, or you were building a business that needed eyeballs so that you could deliver advertising in the form of banner ads. And as time progressed, the web became much more fragmented, and of course Google emerged and programmatic advertising emerged, and it became far more difficult to create properties that would actually be sustainable delivering millions and hundreds of millions of page views to make the, the advertising model work. And in the backdrop with all of this, over the course of time, what has also happened is there's been a tremendous shift in the underlying cost structures required to launch businesses. And I can just say this generically, but if we just look at some of the fundamentals, if we were founding a business together, say, 15 years ago, the cost of, or let's go 10 years back, the cost of storage has declined by 16x over the course of 10 years. And the cost of bandwidth and transit, if you will, just to deliver things like media streaming for distance learning or media and publishing, and you know, you think about YouTube, was, had a far more uh, expensive cost model when it was founded, but uh, the cost of bandwidth and storage has declined by almost 75 times over the course of 10 years. If you go way back to the early 2000s, there was a company called Contiki that was founded by a guy named Mike Homer. And it was essentially to support what we called the ASP model back then, but it was sort of a rent to own or a, rent, a rental model for infrastructure to host everything from databases, web servers, et cetera. It's now since been replaced by what we all know to be AWS or Amazon Web Services. But there is, they were charging 10 years ago 100 times more for infrastructure. 10 years ago than we are able to buy infrastructure for today. So back then, they were charging $100,000 a month for what would cost you or you and I $1,000 a month using AWS. So the, the underlying cost structure has allowed products, apps, services, and just developers and entrepreneurs in general to deploy and deliver valuable products and services to customers in a much more cost-effective way. And what that has allowed for is a fundamental change in the way that we think about pricing and delivering these apps, products, app services to end customers. It allows us actually to price on the margin because the underlying cost stru structure isn't so uh, prohibitive. There's not, there, you don't have the same upfront capital expenditure required that you would need to recoup through an upfront multi-year licensing model that would allow you to get go buy and deploy servers to serve that particular customer's needs. And so that's one thing. is that That's more of a mechanical and, and kind of an underlying sort of economic shift that's occurred. But then when you layer on top of that what has happened in terms of just the way consumers think about buying services, um, let's go to the, just the software model. So as recently as five years ago, if you and I were looking to buy a copy of Photoshop, we would go into a store and perhaps buy a shrink-wrapped version, version of Photoshop for, I don't know, $1,200 off the shelf. And today, we are able to sign up through Adobe Creative 
cloud and pay $39 a month, and it's sort of a pay-on-the-margin, pay-as-you-go model. And they have made the ability to consume their software, which is kept up to date, and you get access to an easy cross-sell, upsell model if you need additional modules and versions right there at your fingertips rather than having to go down and install software and then run outdated software and have to buy upgrades. So what's happened is I think fundamentally the notion of convenience and having access to services that are priced beneath a threshold where there is cognitive load introduced. Standing there at the aisle staring at a $1,200 price tag looking at Adobe Photoshop forces any consumer to scratch your head and go, gee, do I really need to do this? Or if I have a small design firm, do I really need to go buy 10 copies in order to uh, have everyone mobilized and productive? Today, it's a much easier decision. And what it allows for is for that easy entry path to introduce trial and adoption for pro products, apps, services, and then marketers can focus on how they nudge those consumers along a cross-sell, upsell sort of migration path to extract more rents over time. So that, that initial hurdle, and the, the, I'll call it the cognitive load that we all used to experience looking at a big heavy price tag for an upfront purchase has gone away, and now we're able to subscribe to services like Netflix where I, I don't know, I've probably subscribed to Netflix for who knows, six, eight years now, and I don't even think about my $15 a month expense because I know that I get more value from it than the incremental expense that appears on my credit card. And that's a good construct. That's a healthy construct for a long-term loyal customer relationship. And so the, the benefits of this have been both on the consumer side as well as on the business or uh, service provider side because annuity revenue streams over time, as we all know, are quite attractive. So you said that when you founded Recurly, you thought you'd focus on sort of the SaaS vertical, but uh, in reality, you've expanded to a, a broad spectrum of businesses. Can, can you talk about some of the other verticals that seem most attractive or, or best poised for disruption through this type of a subscription uh, business model? Sure. And there are many. I would say the the ability to access and deliver valuable services, again, I'll say products, apps, services, content, media, publishing, et cetera, kind of go, expands the gamut. Uh, to end consumers is now has changed so so fundamentally that it has allowed for disruption to occur in, in many different industries. I'll focus on a few. So just Think about cable providers and, and the, the general sort of, uh, you hear about cord cutting, you hear about OTT providers going direct to consumer. This is one vertical where there is fantastic and sort of exciting disruption occurring. And we have many customers in this vertical that are uh, delivering media and programming directly from publishers and the source to consumers via the desktop or smart TVs and certainly mobile tablet devices. Um, so this is, uh, I would say, you know, sidestepping the toll booths that we have all come to know in the form of cable operators that have truck rolls and they run cable into your home. Um, they might have made a, a very handsome business at a point in time when delivering a big basket and bundle of services 
was attractive and appealing to grow very profitable businesses at the time. But now with the advent of uh, broadband being penetrated into the market and consumers being able to stream directly to devices at any point in the day, the fragmentation of the market allows for consumers to say, hey, I don't need that big fat bundle of all of those different um, content channels. I only want the channels that I'm interested in and that's what I want to pay for. So there's the big, there's a notion of a movement between the big kind of heavyweight bloated programming models moving towards what are called skinny bundles. And this is one area of some pretty fantastic disruption that's occurring. Uh, it's happening in many, many other industries, and I'd say some of the new emerging industries that are exciting to watch unfold here are uh, connected devices. So you think about we, what we hear about generically being referred to as the Internet of Things. I would say that a year or so ago, I started to hear the term and thought, okay, this is sort of analyst speak, and yeah, we'll see. Well, uh, the cloud and SaaS was sort of analyst speak at a certain point in time, and then it became a reality, and now we're definitely seeing connected devices from home security automation. Uh, we power billing for uh, Lowe's has a product called Iris Home Automation. Canary is a device that is a security camera that sits on your shelf that is connected to your Wi-Fi. Um, we have a company that is an automated smart lock on your uh, door, you know, a lot of uh, uh, homeowners are now wanting to install smart locks so that they can let uh, family members in remotely from their phone, et cetera, uh, called August smart locks. And uh, it, it sort of spans the gamut, but when you sort of elevate out and you think about the cost of embeddable chips and programming and controls and sensors starting to become more commonplace in all of these devices that we're consuming and all of these appliances at home, typically they are extendable. They, they have the ability to upgrade and to have additional features and additional integrations with other systems. And oftentimes that appears as a line item or maybe a microtransaction that might appear on your, on your statement. And so the ability to uh, to, to gain benefit from all of these connected devices that are now uh, being offered and I would say we're just at the forefront of what is going to be a big uh, explosion and proliferation of these kinds of devices, they all need billing systems related to how consumers will consume these services and there will naturally be cross-sell, upsell migrations as you add new locks, thermostats, lights, uh, sprinklers, et cetera. And so that's just one other example. And the, the list goes on and beyond, you know, distance learning, dating, music, media, uh, uh, media in all forms, traditional publishing being uh, fragmented and delivered directly to consumer, et cetera. Uh, so we're seeing it across the board, and it's pretty fun to watch. I, I want to go back to the, the cable and the media provider example that you touched on a few minutes ago. Because when I think about some of the challenges associated with subscription-based business models, the one thing that comes to mind is scale, right? And uh, again, I, I'll just use the, the Netflix example that you used. Um, you know, they earn a monthly fee for my subscription, but it seems like, you know, their opportunities to grow their revenue from existing customers like me might be fairly limited if it's if we're just talking about you know sort of a basic monthly fee um, in your view do subscription-based businesses rely 
primarily on new customers to, to grow. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how customer acquisition costs play into this, um, especially given some of the, the, the uh, experience that you uh, mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, working on customer acquisitions at eBay. Sure. Um, it's an interesting question with multiple parts, so I'll just back way up and and uh, first, at the highest level, just comment on customer acquisition and the underlying economics of customer acquisition at scale uh, and the important role that churn plays in any operating model for any company that's engaged in a subscription model. So it's often underestimated, but the the sensitivity of the churn variable in, in the assumptions that you make, so if you, whether you're crafting a business plan and you're tweaking with variables, trying to see what happens when you uh, look at month-over-month -month revenue growth rates, you know that that's a sensitive variable. But ultimately, when you start to get involved with subscriptions of any sort for any kind of a business, your ability to go attack a large and growing market is, is going to be... Uh, Someone somewhat constrained by your ability to acquire your your n your next n number of customers at a certain rate. So you're going to have high performing channels and then lower performing channels, and through that blended rate, you will have a customer acquisition cost. But what ultimately ends up impacting your bottom line more than anything else is the churn rate. That is one of the most sensitive variables in any recurring revenue business, and it goes back to the age old. Uh, it even goes back to the insurance business, but uh, and actuarial tables, but let's talk about uh, just cable providers or um, you think about uh, churn that occurs in a monthly gym membership. Uh, they, they occur, it occurs in many different kind of recurring models, but the extent to which you can identify and control the many input uh, and driving factors of churn is incredibly important for any subscription or recurring revenue business. And so within the context of that, most companies out there today that are engaged in the recurring or subscription model typically want to make it really easy for customers to sign up. Today, the most commonplace m method of payment is to uh, ask for a credit card, store that credit card on file, and then and, uh, charge the card uh, repeatedly on a recurring billing interval. And credit cards have a tendency to fail, and they can often lead to what is called unintentional churn, meaning the, the gym member may have no intention to churn out and cancel their subscription, but their card might fail, and then the gym has to come back and contact you and say, please update your billing information. So there are many drivers of churn, and typically subscription businesses want to understand to what extent is my churn being driven by unintentional factors, exogenous factors versus intentional churn, meaning my customer either feels that they don't, they are no longer getting value from my service and that they're paying too much or no longer using the service and therefore need to want to, they, they want to stop paying for the service, which is an entirely different set of drivers. And, and so the blended mix is really critical and important for any business owner, operator to have a handle on and to ultimately control and continually optimize and improve. So let's, let's dig in a little bit more on, on customer churn. Um, and this is a very timely topic uh, uh, from my point of view because I actually just changed my credit card number recently. 
So a lot of my subscription billing relationships, um, I'm being notified that I need to update my information, right? So that just happened on my Netflix account um, a week or so ago. I got an email that said my account was placed on hold until I update my credit card information. Uh, but then just earlier today, I got another email from them that said, we've successfully processed your payment using my new credit card, even though I hadn't entered any new information into the system. So how do you explain that? Is that something that, that Recurly helps with re replacing um, credit card information or, or helping um, reduce that unintentional customer churn? Yes, absolutely. And this, this is a very big issue, and it can be driven by a variety of factors. Either your card was lost or stolen, or you elected to replace a card. Uh, another common, commonly talked about topic these days is the adoption of EMV chip and PIN. So we are all, over time, receiving cards with embedded chips in them to reduce the instances of fraud. And while it's been common in Europe for many years, it hasn't been that common here in the United States because of um, our lack of point-of-sale systems to, to, that we're able to support this. So now as our systems are being updated, we are, as an industry in general, the credit card industry and retailers are uh, evolving their services and, and their systems in order to address uh, many different forms of fraud. So what that means is, Depending on your issuing bank, you may receive a new chipped card in the mail that has the same account number, which means your Netflix subscription will continue on. If you are one of the unlucky few that has a card that is replaced with a new uh, account number on it, that means that your cards on file with your local gym and Netflix and your magazine subscriptions, etc., may fail and they will contact you unless they're working with a service provider like ourselves, at Recurly, we integrate with a service that is provided by Visa MasterCard and the, and the card brands, which works with a majority of the issuing banks. It's, uh, the effective coverage is about 75%, so it's not all of them. But what they do is they, in the fine print of your credit card statement, when you sign up for a credit card, it allows the issuing bank to provide the replacement card back to the card associations, so Visa MasterCard, to make available to PCI compliant, and that's language for a level of security compliance that the card associations require of payment gateways and providers like ourselves to gain access to your replacement card. So for the 2,000 some odd merchants that we provide billing services for, we are able to pass in the credit cards that are coming up and expected to be invoiced in, say, a week from now to see if there's a replacement card number available. And this can be the result of uh, a card reported lost or stolen. It can be the result of an EMV card that has been replaced and mailed to you, et cetera. And the idea and the reason why this is a, a big issue for any recurring billing or subscription-based company at scale is that it allows us to stay ahead of unintentional churn or losing customers due to inadvertent reasons, meaning it may be a card that's simply being replaced, but the customer had no intention of canceling a subscription. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, it really comes down to continuity of billing. And if you think about lifetime value, the T in lifetime value, that time continuum is also 
an incredibly sensitive variable related to churn. So we are in the business of helping our merchants extend the T in lifetime value and ensure that those the continuity of those annuity revenue events keep clicking along. So yes, um, this is one of many different factors that uh, are introduced in as a challenge for any subscription billing or recurring billing operator that they need to stay on top of. So I can see why this is a huge value add for merchants and, and even for consumers, right? I don't have to go in and update my credit card information, but I will say that it felt a little creepy when I got that second email from Netflix and they said, oh, we've updated your account information for you. Does that play into this at all, you know, in terms of how how consumers feel about, you know, the privacy of their credit or debit card information? Yes, uh, I would say I can approach it trying to be as objective as I can being a biased participant here that uh, I certainly can appreciate how it would it could be surprising to an end customer to say, wait a minute, how did they gain access to uh, my replacement card? That's a little odd. Um, certainly, let me let me just back up in the world of uh, impropriety, and I'd say crossing the line of what should be considered uh, decent and convenient uh, services to consumers. Visa MasterCard in general are in the business of providing a trusted network, and that's the reason why the credit card network works is that there's recourse built in, and ultimately merchants are saddled with the responsibility of uh, serving end customers in a trustworthy way. Otherwise, there's a very very well-known mechanism in the form of a chargeback where if the end customer feels that they have been wronged, they can certainly remedy that by calling their issuing bank and a chargeback is initiated. And those chargebacks are super expensive for merchants because they, they not only have to issue the funds back, but they also are uh, shouldered with fines that are levied against them. And, and if they uh, surpass a certain threshold of 1% of transactions being charged back, they can get effectively blacklisted. So there are very real consequences for merchants if they are engaged in shady practices. And so um, I would say that this is one of those services that by and large across the general population, most consumers feel that this is a convenience and uh, it is something that is considered to be a best practice. It's, it's something that is offered by Visa, MasterCard, Amex, uh, et cetera. And, um, it, it, and I would also say that you know, very few of us, and I can claim that I, I have actually only – very few of us read the fine print in our credit card statements. It generally gets into privacy uh, declarations and, and some pretty granular language that uh, would make most of us glaze over. But in that fine print is where we all agree to uh, the industry's ability to provide this back to the card associations. Now, there is a responsibility. The reason why they only make this service available to PCI level one compliant vendors and service providers is it's not made available to just anyone out there. And it's because there is a threshold and a level of, of responsibility, auditing, compliance, et cetera, that is, it needs to be demonstrated to Visa, MasterCard in order for any service provider to be able to provide this uh, to merchants. So yes, I'd say it can feel creepy. 
by and large, the industry has used it for many years. And if it felt so creepy to a broad majority of, of end card holders to such an extent that they were issuing chargebacks and costing merchants a lot of money, then it would no longer be a practice that would be considered a best practice. I'd say w the the eyes are, are are outweighing the nays in terms of convenience outweighing the the sort of creepy factor. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it was just the first time I had I had experienced that. The next time it happens, I probably won't be as surprised as I was this time. Mm -hmm. But sir, let's get into a little bit more on why cards are declined and and what the dec decline rates look like, right? So what would you say are, you know, average credit and debit card decline rates for subscription-based businesses and do they do they uh differ across you know, B2B services versus B2C? They absolutely do. So I love the question. It's something that we look at every single day. We're always cutting the data in a variety of different ways. So we look at a couple of different uh quadrants if you will. So there's there are personal and corporate and then debit and credit cards. So if you think about that two-by-two two matrix, I would say that in general when, when I receive the question of, you know, what, on average, what kind of decline rate should we expect for our business, unfortunately the answer always begins with it depends. It depends on the audience you're serving. So if you're, ser if you're selling into enterprises with corporate cards, which tend to be disproportionately Amex cards, you'll see a very different kind of uh, co composite makeup of the declines experience than you would if you're selling into, uh, let's just say, college students that are living a little closer to the edge where you might have more um, uh, insufficient funds and temporary holds uh, type, type declines coming back, and those would be on personal and increasingly debit cards. Um, you will see credit limits have been reached on uh, corporate cards because someone will go out and buy a raft of computers or furniture or, or something and they might hit their upper bound credit limit. Uh, in general, companies that are consumer facing, so B2C companies typically see a higher range of declines. So in general, we see anywhere from, oh, uh, and, it, and it depends on, on the business and the audience you're serving and the demographic, but it can range from 6 to 18% of credit cards will fail for B2C companies. And typically for B2B companies, it's a little lower, and we'll see anywhere from uh, 5 to 15%. Uh, but they tend to be very different error and decline types. And so that's where we dig in, and, and our first order of business is to say, okay, what kind of error is it? We look at the error logs and what the, the back-end gateway and processing back-end is telling us to understand why the card failed, because every single failure type, and there are about 60 different failure types, have a different method that we employ to go correct for that card, uh, that card decline. Um, so... Some of these errors, whether it's insufficient funds and a temporary hold in place, of course, we, there's nothing we can do about that. But if it's, for example, a debit card and there are insufficient funds, we do look at historical patterns to create predictive uh, analytics and, and data-driven uh, retry logic to know that, okay, payrolls hit on the 1st and 15th. They tend to hit on Fridays and Saturdays, so we know we have 
higher probabilities of recovering that particular decline type on the 1st and 15th for that particular card uh, when funds are replenished. There, we've also seen some interesting anomalies where higher ticket items like, uh, uh, let's say, north of $500 that starts to become considered a higher credit card uh, invoice amount, there are uh, risk mitigation heuristics that are put in place by payment gateways and the whole payment processing value chain. And these, these risk mitigation heuristics have coefficients applied to them, and these are typically algorithms that adjust throughout time of day, day of week, et cetera. So we see different decline rates coming back on weekends versus weekdays, and certainly throughout the hours of the day. And I'll give you an example, which is that in the wee hours of the night between 1 and 5 a.m., that is when fraudsters tend to operate and typically coming from different time zones around the world. And so over the course of time, the let's just say the broader value chain and the payment processing value chain, each with different levels of filters and, and uh, computer-driven, algorithmic-driven uh, mitigation technologies have coefficients that adjust. So when our company had a holiday party and we ha had a large tab at the end of the night, the card was declined, and I said to the proprietor, try it again first thing in the morning because we were confident that it would go through, and sure enough, he tried it at the open of business the next day, and the card went through. And it is simply, in this instance, because a large ticket item happening at, say, one in the morning is going to be identified as, as having a higher potential or probability of being fraudulent, and it, and it can get declined. And so this is in the grand scheme of things, it's a false negative. So when you think about payment processing uh, as it relates to our statistics classes, you have false negatives and false positives in any normal distribution. And, and false positives result in fraud. It means that a bad card or a stolen card got through and ended up becoming a fraudulent transaction where a, a merchant has shipped goods to someone that shouldn't have received them. But false negatives occur all the time. So if you trim the tails on both sides and if you say, I want absolutely zero fraud in my business, it means you're going to trim both tails and you're probably going to constrain the amount of uh, positive cards that should have gone through. You're going to naturally constrain that bell curve if you want zero fraud. So you typically end up having to manage false negatives along with false positives. Do you have a sense for how much revenue is potentially lost um, as a result of you know cards being declined and and how much of that revenue can you help your clients recover yes that is that is uh, something that we pride ourselves on so I can tell you from the perspective of our business alone and, and we're processing uh, billions a year in total payment volume uh, we've recovered over 200 million in recovered revenue over the course of time. And globally, I, I don't have a sense for what this means globally, but I do know from looking at our own customer base that we confidently can assert and support with data that we recover between 5 to as high as 8% of revenue that is recoverable through the application of this retry logic and addressing these false negative declines. And that is just in period, meaning in month recovered revenue. And what that doesn't account for is the future value of that annuity revenue stream, whereby 
You might have a cardholder that's on vacation, their card has declined, but they still fully expect and want to continue to be a subscriber. But if their card's declined and they don't have the ability to attend to it, they might actually let their subscription lapse and that future value of the annuity revenue stream goes away. So five to seven percent or five to eight percent in in period, meaning in month, is very material for any business, but when you start talking about that at scale, it's certainly material to EPS for large publicly traded companies, which is why you hear uh, the Netflix CFO talk about credit card declines as part of the way that they evaluate their business. It is absolutely a core KPI in their business. So five to 8% of revenue recovered seems like a huge win to me. Um, but, you know, I read a report recently. Uh, it was by MGI Research, which suggested that just 20% of Fortune 1000 companies will likely adopt these types of subscription um, management platforms over the next call it four to five years. Um, so I, that number was was actually surprisingly low to me. I would have expected, you know, if you can recover, you know, between five and eight percent of revenue, more companies would would be um, interested in these services. I mean, it, what what's your view? Do you feel like um, there's a lot of growth potential in this space, um, or do you feel like it's more about deepening relationships with uh, with existing clients and, and companies that you already work with? Yes, I would say um, I can comment on the on the report and then the general evolution. I would say just at a high level, let's go back in time a little bit, uh, five, ten years ago, again, if you and I were founding a company, we likely would have raised money and gone deep on building our own billing infrastructure. And today, it is l less and less likely that you and I today founding a company together would do this because the amount of expertise, and let's just call it the combination of the art and science required to not only build and maintain a set of billing infrastructure that serves the needs of end customers across a cross-sell, upsell migration path and making all of those decisions seamless and frictionless, coupled with the amount of logic and expertise that is required to unwind the reasons why credit cards fail, you would end up spending more time and money and, and seeking to hire specialists than it would be worth your while or our while. And so increasingly companies are interested in outsourcing this capability. And that's, that's more of a pragmatic kind of functional rationale. But then when you get into uh, let's just call it enterprise risk. You know, we've all seen the high-profile uh, credit card breaches. In order to engage in card recycling, you have to store and tokenize and vault uh, credit cards in order to be able to unpack them and to understand how you should respond to the various sources of decline. And so, again, 10 years ago, companies were willing to do this. Now, with the advent of chip and pin technology, what has happened is it's kind of like a wet bar of soap problem where fraud patterns have very quickly moved online because it's become far more difficult to, for fraudsters to engage in things like card cloning, which used to be quite common at ATMs and gas stations, and to go into retail stores and to buy a, a pair of sneakers with a, a cloned card. Today, what has happened is 
uh, fraud patterns have moved online very quickly. And so with that, the likelihood of, like, we've seen the high profile security breaches, but security breaches in general happen and are far more prevalent. And the, the level of security and expertise and investment required to run a payment processing and card vaulting enterprise have gone up considerably. The level of compliance and scrutiny and auditing required to achieve uh, PCI compliance for organizations in general has gone way up. So we see corporate legal teams now evaluating at the highest level enterprise risk. And you know, just managing risk in larger corporations is a, a very critical function, as we know. And this is one of those areas where the cost savings of kind of going it alone and building your own infrastructure and saving, uh, you know, a bit of money based on uh, building and owning infrastructure. When those people that built the, your own infrastructure leave the company and leave behind a lack of documentation and then someone else inherits it as kind of a side job, that's when companies get themselves in trouble. And so today we're seeing... With this more tectonic shift and some of the meta trends that we're seeing around fraud and the elevated uh, levels of enterprise risk, we're seeing more and more companies elect to outsource their billing operations and and certainly recurring billing operations because they don't want to store credit cards in their four walls, and yet they still want to maintain all the affordances required to be able to offer multiple dimensions of their billing to in order to uh, walk their customers across that that nice cross-sell, upsell migration path that we talked about, and so the the rationale and the and perhaps the assessment that used to go into it has changed, and today companies are typically electing to take their scarce engineering resources and apply them towards differentiating, developing their core IP and differentiating themselves and 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 getting the highest and best use out of their headcount and, and the staff they bring on board rather than having them build core infrastructure that they can uh, outsource to service providers. So I've, I've got just one last question before we wrap up today. Um, what were some of the lessons that, you, that you've learned over the past six years in growing the company and learning from mistakes or pivoting what would you share for any other prospective entrepreneurs in our audience? Sure. Um, I can say we, there were some decisions we made along the way where we've gotten things right, and of course some decisions where we've gotten things wrong and quickly learned from it. I, I would say you know, part of our core values as a company is iterate everything, and, and that is to say that and we, re, we apply that to people, process, and behaviors, meaning it's okay to make a mistake, but we just don't want to make the same mistake twice. And so uh, one of the things at the highest level that I would say where we frankly got a bit lucky was we, I mentioned earlier, we had approached initially there being a need, and it was a need born out of our personal experience having worked in other companies, large and small, that said, wow, there's the, recurring billing is a well-understood pain point. So I would say that could be the first lesson, which is, I've worked in other companies that have whiz-bang technology and the market's not there yet, it's an emerging market, and we banged our head against the wall trying to convince prospective customers that we had something that would solve a pain point that they didn't yet realize they had. And so after having worked for several startups along the way, I really swore to myself that I would focus on solving a pain point that's well understood and easily describable 
And that's where I would say we've been fortunate in that from the day we launched our service, we had strong product market fit. It didn't take a lot of pivoting and meandering and experimentation to figure out what we needed to add or sub subtract in order to start to resonate with a customer base. Fortunately, recurring billing has and has been and has always been and it continues to be an extremely painful operation to get right. And so that was the first piece where I'd say um, in terms of focusing your business venture in the right direction, it's a heck of a lot easier to focus where there is well-understood pain. The second is to focus on a large market, an extremely large market. And what that does is it gives you effectively an insurance policy because no matter who you talk to, there are very few companies that grow and explode in a exponential path without having to course correct and make some mistakes along the way and figure out problems along the way, even if it's scalability and infrastructure and hiring and building an org, and et cetera. There's, there are always stages of growth that occur behind the scenes that are, you know, some, some are smooth, but some are not so smooth. And focusing on a large market opportunity affords you many degrees of freedom where you can actually afford to make some mistakes or take some time decision right or to build infrastructure you need in order to get to the next stage of growth and to support customers without having to bet the farm. And we've been quite fortunate in that regard that as we've grown over six and a half years, our infrastructure has become far more resilient and far more complex, but we've gone from a service where in the beginning, admittedly, we were building and designing software to work and over the course of time, we very quickly realized that that's only part of it. We have to build software that not only works, but fails and fails elegantly. So I'd, I'd say there's been a, a shift and a maturation here in terms of the kinds of developers that we've hired that have experienced, that understand how to design systems with no single points of failure, that fail elegantly, that allow for us to deliver a mission-critical service to customers. And so all of these things, I think, have helped us get to the stage we are in now where we have a tremendous responsibility serving the needs of Fortune 500 companies. We power billing for more than a dozen publicly traded companies. And with that, you can imagine, comes uh, extreme scrutiny from their info security departments as well as auditors and, of course, uh, service level agreements, meaning if we stumble, there, there are costs uh, involved in terms of um, ensuring the continuity of their billing. And so uh, we've gotten better at it over time. The other is, and I would say in hindsight, this is one that we got right and it was uh, perhaps a bit fortunate, but our first non-technology uh, hire, employee number four, was customer support. So we've always been very customer focused. And over the course of time, customer support then was augmented by a customer success team. And customer success has continued to evolve. And now we have onboarding and education teams. And I would say investing in the customer and the health of that customer relationship has been great for us because not only is it practicing what we preach, we're in the business of helping our customers engender loyalty and, and nurturing long-term relationships with their end customers. It's been quite important at our company from day one, and that is something that I think is really difficult to recover from if you get wrong. So it's not just about focusing on building the software or service that you are delivering to your customers. It's also about forming the relationships and the trust over time 
that allow you to uh, have a, a relationship that allows for there to be a, an honest and sometimes hard conversation about topics that come up over the course of uh, multi-year relationships. And if you have a basis of trust and confidence in the person on the other side of the table, it, it allows for those relationships to grow in a much more healthy fashion over time. And so these are the kinds of things that I would really underscore for entrepreneurs as they think about how they might want to approach uh, getting their venture off the ground. And these are some of the things that we've learned over time, and I would certainly double down on again if, if, uh, if founding another company. Sounds like some really great takeaways there. Um, thanks so much for your time today, Dan. Uh, very interesting discussion, and we look forward to staying in touch. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.